I hope you are in Matthew chapter 6 again. We are continuing our series through the gospel, not Matthew, Mark. Mark chapter 6. I had you confused for a second. I was just testing you. That was a test to see if you were awake. Apparently, I need to be awake too. Uh, Mark chapter 6 this morning, continuing our series through this gospel. And we have made our way through five chapters now, and we're entering into... I like to, I love these chapters, chapters 6, 7, and 8. They are some of the most pivotal, uh, not only of the Gospel of Mark itself, but I think of Jesus' narrative, the story of Jesus. Uh, I was doing some planning ahead, and we won't get through all of these chapters before the end of the year, but it'll give you kind of a cliffhanger, because my favorite chapter, Mark 8, will actually be in a sermon after the turn of the year. But anyways, we are here in Mark chapter 6. And we, as Pastor Nathan read, he's returning to his hometown of Nazareth. And again, we have another scene in which people are getting upset. They're getting sort of, as we were mentioning last week, their feathers all ruffled because of stuff Jesus is saying and doing or perhaps not doing and saying. And this is sort of, as we've seen already, this has sort of been a pattern for Jesus. (laughs) He's made it sort of his... uh, his operations, so to speak, to sort of upset religious people and what they think about the Messiah. He's showing them that, yes, he is the Messiah, but what they thought about what the Messiah would do is, in all points, most likely wrong. Yes, he's preaching the kingdom, but it's not coming about how they thought it would. And such is why, as we already have seen, he's engendered so much hostility for his preaching and teaching ministry. Seemingly at every turn, he is making someone upset. He's just uh, ruffling their feathers, uh, making them uh, a little bit frustrated. Uh, and so frustrated, perhaps, that there's already a plot against him. As we saw in chapter 3, the Pharisees and Herodians are already joining their forces together to sort of get a plot against Jesus to execute him, to wipe him out. And yet Jesus persists. It doesn't stop him from teaching and preaching and healing and ministering. He is already showing his sort of penchant for not really caring what these other people are saying about him. Whether you're offended by his message or not, that cares, he cares very little for that. Because as we are going to see here, faith is offensive. The faith that we hold to, the faith that Jesus preaches, is an offensive faith. It's one that, yes, might ruffle our feathers, but that's a good thing. It might make us uncomfortable, but Jesus is going to say that that's... A good thing. Because the faith that Jesus is going to present here. The faith that Jesus preaches. The faith that his apostles preached. And we likewise uphold as well. Is a faith that rips control. That rips glory out of our hands. And leaves it only with this Jesus. This good king. Here in Mark chapter 6. We have four little scenes That I think are joined together by this idea. The offense of faith. The first one is just these first six verses. I think here we see the first little scene. Which I've entitled faith's rejection. Faith's rejection. Look at it again this morning. 
And he, that is Jesus, went out from thence and came into his own country. His disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Jesus here returns to his hometown of Nazareth. His home country, his own country as it says there. And he is teaching in the synagogue. Now, it's not very clear from this text whether it's the same incident that we have recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. Remember Luke 4, he goes to the synagogue and he starts preaching from the book of Isaiah chapter 61. And he closes the book and he says, This day are these things fulfilled in your ears. And then they run him out of the town. They run him out of the synagogue and he disappears from out of their midst. We don't have that specifically recorded here. It's not known whether this is another instance of him coming back to his hometown before he's kicked out swiftly. But regardless, here we see displayed right before our very eyes that which was predicted of Christ himself from John chapter 1. Remember John 1 verse 11 which says he came unto his own and his own received him not. Luke 4 shows us that. Mark 6 shows us that again. His own received him not. Look at um, the end of verse 3. And it says, And they were offended at him. (laughs) Their disregard, their offense at Jesus. Look at sort of how they they regard this Jesus and why they are so offended. Why they are so uh, upset at what he is saying and what they are accusing him of. Look at again. Look at their questions. From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. I cannot help but think of that glorious chapter from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, when I read these verses. Let me read those verses to you from the beginning of Isaiah 53. Because I think it's important to understand that what is going on here is very reminiscent of what was predicted of Jesus Christ himself in these verses. He came unto his own, his own received him not. Listen to these verses from Isaiah 53. It begins, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised. And rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And we despised and was despised, and we esteemed him not. Notice how the Nazarenes here are regarding him exactly in the same manner. They're regarding him as unimportant. Whence hath this man these things? Where does this guy get off? Who does he think he is? Where's this guy come from? Isn't this the carpenter? 
This is the carpenter's son. And he's the one who is a a, a carpenter who just works with his hands. Whence is he teaching us? We know him. We know his brothers and his sisters. This guy is... He's not from an important family, not from a highly regarded lineage. Who does he think he is teaching us? (laughs) See, Nazareth is a very small town in which everybody knows everybody, so to speak. (laughs) So I would hasten to suggest that many here know Jesus and remember him from his teenage years. (laughs) And he's coming back here and he's now teaching us. Who does he think he is? He's a carpenter. He's not a teacher. He's not a rabbi. He hasn't learned from our schools. This is Jesus. Reminds me of that verse that we just read. That he shall grow up before us as a tender plant. As a root out of a dry ground. He doesn't appear significant. He doesn't appear important. And standing in front of them was The Messiah. But they couldn't see it. The carpenter's son cannot be a prophet. Much less the king. They regard him also as unimpressive. Where does he get his wisdom? They say. Whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? That even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. How is he doing these things? Obviously, this wisdom wasn't his. He was given it by someone else. Where does this guy come from? Again, Isaiah 53, that he has no form nor comeliness. There is nothing that we should see in him. No beauty, as it says there, that we should desire him. He isn't impressive. And notice, thirdly, how they regard him. They regard him as illegitimate. Again, look at the question. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Joseph? No, it says the son of Mary. (laughs) Is not this the son of Mary? Is not this the one who was rumored to be a a child born out of wedlock? (laughs) You have to go back and think about why Joseph, Jesus' father, as it says there in the the nativity account, why it said that he wanted to put her away privily. (laughs) Because all of a sudden she's pregnant. All of a sudden rumors are swirling. She has. uh, The rumors are swirling that she has. uh, That they have acted out of wedlock. Infidelity. Mary can never shake off this stigma. Imagine, Imagine being Mary. A young girl who is all of a sudden pregnant with child. And you say, uh, nothing has happened. (laughs) I swear, it's just the spirit has uh, has conceived inside of me. Do you think people would believe her? I hasten not. (laughs) Not very many people would believe you if that was your excuse. And this is Mary's testimony. That she is bearing the son of God. And she's bearing it under this type of affliction. This type of rumor swirling around her. This is Mary's son. The illegitimate child. And he's teaching us in the truths of scripture. He was despised and rejected of men. And we esteemed him not. Nazareth is offended at this man. 
They're rejecting the faith that he is giving unto them. Why? It says they are offended. It's the word that we get scandalized. They are scandalized by this Jesus. Outraged by his normalcy, we might say. You notice what they're offended at? He has nothing that we should desire him. Like it says in Isaiah 53. They're infuriated by Jesus' lack of pomp and circumstance and fanfare. (laughs) He's not coming with trumpets sounding and a very impressive speech. Something that uh, speaks as if he is someone that we should listen to. He's not someone who is charismatic in which everyone is flocking around him and following him. They're following him for his healing, but not for his words. And such is the point that Mark is making, such is the title of our series, that he is the unexpected Messiah. He's the one who comes as the Lord, yes, but the Lord who serves. And he's the one who comes as the king, but as the king who is born to die. He's rejected of men. And what should have made them marvel, they found offensive. It was Jesus' flesh. You think about that. They are offended at the fact that they know him. You can't be the Messiah. We expect someone supernatural. The Messiah has to be someone special, impressive. He has to be someone that possesses otherworldly appearance, but he doesn't. He's just like them. We know him. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. We grew up with him. He's too normal. He can't be the Messiah. They couldn't do with a God who was just like them. And yet such is our hope. That we have a God who in every way was like us yet without sin. And that is why he is our glorious hope. But they thought elsewise. That surely this Messiah, he wouldn't be so unremarkable, so ordinary, so normal. Such is why at the end, look at verse 6. It says, he marveled because of their unbelief. It's the only recorded instance here in the gospel of Mark of Jesus marveling. Of Jesus being in utter bewilderment. And what is he bewildered by? Their unbelief. I don't think there's a sadder verse in the gospel perhaps than this verse 5. And he could do there no mighty work. Why? Unfaith. Rejection of who he was. A repudiation of what he was teaching. Of what he was offering. Of what he was declaring. So he takes his ministry elsewhere. And he could do there no mighty work, verse 5. Save that he laid his hand upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching So he takes his ministry abroad. And we see that in the second scene here, starting in verse 7. So we have first faith's rejection, but also here we have the opposite, faith's reception. Because in immediate contrast to Jesus' own people, we have his apostles. Who, instead of rejecting what he was saying in unfaith, they receive it in faith. Look what we have here. Look at verse 7. And he called unto him the twelve. 
And began to send them forth two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey save a staff only. No scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, in what place soever ye enter into an house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So here... Jesus commissions the twelve to preach his message as a message of repentance. To preach his name and do his service. They're going out in faith of this one who has commissioned him. And they're going out as his very representatives. They're going out as if Jesus was going out themselves. They're going out with his power. Power, it says, over devils. Over unclean spirits. It reminds me from that other verse in John chapter 1. Where it says, and, to, and as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. And here the apostles are evidencing that right before us. And notice, notice their urgency in this mission. Jesus says, don't take anything with you save for a staff. No bread, no money in their purse. Just some sandals and a coat. Go quickly. Travel light. Don't concern yourself with the normal comforts and conveniences with which you would travel. This is an urgent mission. Their mission was to be swift. Not to concern themselves with just trying to press on in a place that rejects him. They were to shake it off and move on. Why? Because Jesus knows that hostility is brewing for him and his followers. There's an urgency to their message. There's an urgency to their mission. Because hostility is brewing. People are going to start coming after them. Such is why we get in the parallel passage to this in Matthew chapter 10. Where Jesus describes what would happen to them. That they would be hated. That they would be scorned. They would be thrown out. They would be rejected. And in that awesome parallel passage in Matthew 10. He says but have no fear. I will give you the words to say in that moment. Here Jesus is blessing the apostles efforts. I love the fact that these apostles, the one who have all, we've already seen and we're going to continue to see how bumbling and just kind of dense they were. Jesus is blessing these guys. These guys who weren't always quite there with Jesus in terms of what he was saying. And Jesus is blessing them. Verse 13. And they were casting out devils. Plural, many devils anointing many that were sick and healing them. They were being blessed in their ministry. Miracles are happening at their hands. We might say this, that stuff happens when we take Jesus' words in faith. Stuff happens 
And that's just an ambiguous term just to say that Jesus moves when we take what he says as true. When we believe it in faith. When we receive his word in faith. They were extensions of Jesus' ministry. They were serving his name. This is what happens when we receive the word in faith. But let me hasten to the third scene because this is so interesting to me. This is the third scene, and starting in verse 14, it goes all the way through verse 29, as I have divided it here, which is faith's ramifications. Because in the middle, in the middle of this account of talking about the apostles' ministry, which is thriving, which is successful, it's sweeping across these surrounding regions, we are given a sudden flashback of John the Baptist. Look at verse 14. And King Herod heard of him, Jesus For his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. And therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. It's very likely. I believe that at this point in time. That John the Baptist is already dead. It's not as if that we have this scene where he dies in the middle of the apostles efforts. He is already deceased. As we are going to see. But Herod here has a flashback of what he did to this man, John the Baptist. He's reminded of that man, that prophet, John the Baptist, because of the fervor and the excitement with which he hears of this man named Jesus. He says he heard of him. He heard of Jesus because his name was being spread abroad. Testimony of the apostles' reception of the word. They're spreading abroad the name of Jesus such that this governor of Rome himself, Herod, hears of it and he himself is troubled by it. He hears of this name Jesus. And all of a sudden he starts having flashbacks of what he did to John. I thought I had squashed all that commotion when I, when I beheaded John the Baptist. But here he is again. There's a stir being caused. And he's confident that it was John the Baptist. Look again, verse 15. Others around him are saying that this is Elias. That is Elijah. And others are saying that, that it is the prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. He is haunted here by what he did to John. He is haunted by what happened. And that's what we get through the rest of this little section. We get this uh, immense, uh, articulate, haunting flashback of what happened to John the Baptist. The precursor of Jesus himself. Look at verse 17. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. So here, John the Baptist is put in prison by Herod. Why? Because John the Baptist had the gumption to call out the governor of Rome for living unlawfully. Your marriage, unlawful, immoral, against God's law. He didn't care who it offended. He was preaching repentance. (laughs) But Herod puts him in prison. But he doesn't kill him. He puts him in prison. And it stops John the Baptist here from causing a stir. 
from causing more commotion. But also look at what, he, what it says in verse 17 again. That he bound him in prison for Herodias' sake. His unlawful wife is so enraged at John the Baptist that he puts him in prison to save him from his wife. <laughs> it'll, it'll corral him so he can't cause more uh, commotion, but it'll also save him from his own wife. <laughs> so he binds him in prison. But Herodias wanted him dead. Look at verse 19. Herodias had a quarrel against him, that is John the Baptist. And would have killed him, but she could not, because he was in prison. And look at verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man, and an holy man, and observed him. And when he had heard him, he did many things, and heard him gladly. Herod knew. Herod knew that causing or killing him would probably cause a greater stir than just imprisoning him. If you killed him, he would become a martyr, someone by which everyone would surround and encircle themselves as a champion for their cause. Such is why he just keeps him here. Keeps him out of trouble, out of harm's way, and he hears him. He is being ministered to. It's a love, the testimony of John the Baptist. Even in prison... Under almost penalty of death, he is ministering to this king. (laughs) Such that this king, this governor Herod, is hearing him, as it says, gladly. (laughs) But what haunts Herod here in verses 21 through 29 is one of the most sordid, one of the most sleazy stories you have in the scriptures. It's full of just outright debauchery, deception, sex, and power. Herodias is bent on killing John. She's bent on it. All of her thoughts are driven towards this thing. Such is why in verse 21 you have that phrase. And when a convenient day was come. It wasn't convenient for anyone except Herodias. This was a convenient day for her. Why? Because her husband... Herod, on his birthday, it says, made a supper to his lords, high captains and chief uh, estates of Galilee. He is high on power and alcohol, and he's riding high on this day in which it is his affair. It It is a party in his honor. It's his birthday. He's surrounding himself with uh, the know-it-alls, the people who are the nobles, the power players. And he's feasting and he's drinking. And it's a scene that is filled with all sorts of sordid affairs. And look at what it says in verse 22. And when the daughter of, the, of, of, the, of Herod, Herodias, came in and danced and pleased Herod. And them that sat with him, the king said to the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. So Herod sees Herodias' daughter dancing and entertaining the crowd in a sexual dance, and Herod finds it pleasing, and he offers her, he promises her, up to half his kingdom. He says, verse 23, and he swear unto her, whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto half of, the, of my kingdom. Which is an interesting uh, promise. Because he can't give half the kingdom because he's not a king. He's a governor. He's put there in the, in, the, in the stead of Rome. He can't give away anything. But such is his emotions in this scene. 
And he promises this daughter, this daughter of Herodias, whatever you ask, I will give it to you. And look at her request. And she went forth and said, verse 24, unto her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. (laughs) On a charger, on a thing that would serve people meat. Give me John's head on that. And Herod does not want this to happen. Look at verse 26. And the king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake, and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. He didn't want to break his promise, but also, look at what it says, for their sakes which sat with him. He didn't want to be embarrassed. He didn't want to be put down for appearing like a softy, for going back on his word. He wants to appear powerful. He wants to appear as if he has everything put together. That he is a true king of Rome. He doesn't want to appear weak. He doesn't want to lose his position. So verse 27. And immediately the king sent an executioner. And commanded his, John the Baptist's head, to be brought And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. What a story. A sad scene. That on a tray which might have just previously rested the king's dinner now rested this holy man's head. (laughs) Violent scene. And I was thinking about why would Mark put it right here? Why would he interrupt this scene of the apostles sweeping the region with the name of Jesus? As it says in verse 14 that they were spreading his name abroad. Why would he interrupt it with this? Why would he interrupt it and interject that story with this horrible, violent, wicked story? I think it's to show the ramifications of what the apostles were preaching. You got to think that no matter how recent the events of John the Baptist's death were, this was on their minds. No doubt this was on the minds of the apostles as they are going about preaching and teaching and healing. They were thinking that they are preaching and teaching the very same message that got John the Baptist beheaded. That had to have been on their minds. That they too, that this could be them. That this imprisonment, this violent end, this could be them. This could be their fate. That their faithfulness could put them in prison. That their passion for this teaching of Jesus could spell their own death. But does that hinder them? No, it does not. They spread Jesus' name. They spread it abroad. Despite all the grim ramifications of what that faith meant. They preach anyways. They bank their lives on Jesus' words. And so should we. 
That regardless of the ramifications for our faith, regardless of the opposition and the persecution, and perhaps one day even death that faces us, we put our faith in Jesus and receive his words in faith. Knowing that suffering for this cause, suffering for this faith, puts you in good company. Puts you in good company. This faith that they were preaching... It had grim, dangerous ramifications for them. Your faith may put you in danger, but it's never outside of God's plan. Do you think God was shaking in his boots when John the Baptist was beheaded? No. No, he was not. Because nothing and no one can thwart God's unstoppable mission of redemption. Not even the beheading of one of his saints. Not even the rejection of his hometown. Nothing can stop Jesus from reclaiming what is his. Such is why we have this last scene. Here in verse 30 and then jumping down to the end of the chapter. I think we see faith's reach. Look at verse 30. After all of their travels. It says, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus. And told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And then they report to this of Jesus. And then jump down to verse 53. After some events, which we are going to speak about next week. They travel across the Galilean Sea again. And it says, verse 53. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, straightway. They knew him. So you see here. The ultimate contrast. To the rejection of Jesus' teaching at Nazareth. Here is the reception of Jesus' message. By these surrounding regions. You see the contrast. His hometown rejected him. As it says they knew him not. And here these people. They knew him. They heard of him. They heard of this Jesus. His name was spread abroad. Why? Because of the apostles' faith. Despite the ramifications of what they were preaching, they spread his name abroad. They were successful. They were effective. Everyone knows of this Jesus. They knew him. Look at verse 55. And they ran through that whole region round about. And began to carry about in beds those that were sick. And were hurt, and where they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country. They laid the sick in the streets. And besought him that they might touch it. Touch if it were but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. As many as touched this Jesus. They were made whole. How contrast. How, well, look at the juxtaposition between earlier in the chapter. Which it says that his ministry was stifled. He could do no mighty work there. Why? Because of their unbelief. And here. Look at the difference. As many as touched him were made whole. As many as were coming to him, they were laying in the streets and they were being healed. He is no longer hindered, no longer healing as it says only a few sick folk. He is healing as many as were touching him. It's the remarkable, striking, 
stunning ministry of our Father, of our Savior, our Messiah in mercy. And such is the difference who know they are desperate and those who think they aren't. See, this to me is the ultimate contrast. The ultimate contrast, the ultimate offense of faith is if you will, is Nazareth's rejection demonstrated how unnecessary and how unwelcome they thought Jesus was. They didn't see their need for him. They didn't see their need for this one that they knew so well. They were blind to this Jesus. Such is why he marvels at their disbelief. It was a self-imposed condemnation. When mercy itself, when grace itself was staring right at them. And they rejected him. They asked him to leave and he left. Jesus cannot remake what we think is still standing. Faith only blossoms in the smoldering crater of failure. Unless you know that you have no ability to save yourself. You will never receive the words of Jesus in faith. Unless, as we spoke to last week, your faith is absolutely desperate. You will not bank. You will not receive. You will not withstand the ramifications. You will not be reached by this faith of Jesus. Because faith is always desperate. The righteousness of his hometown was standing. They didn't see their need for him. They didn't see their need for Jesus. Similar with us. So long as we think that our righteousness still stands on its own, Jesus cannot give us his. As as the early church father, St. Augustine, he says it this way, God always pours his grace into empty hands. The Nazarenes, their fists were clenched of their own logic, their own reason, their own righteousness. And in contrast, these sick in the surrounding villages, their hands were empty. Ready to receive whatever their Savior had to give them. Desperate or not. Faith is always, true faith is always desperate faith, clinging to and relying on nothing but what is received. Those in Nazareth rejected it in unfaith. These in the surrounding villages accepted, received the faith of Jesus. And such is the offense Of the faith which Jesus preaches. Which he is proclaiming. That all control and glory is not yours. You don't have a leg to stand on. You are not well in yourself. Jesus is the one who makes you well. Jesus is the one as it says. Who makes you whole. Jesus is the one who saves you. By his grace. Are you clinging to your own reason and righteousness? Or you have your hands open ready to receive the righteousness which Jesus offers for free? 
He is the mercy of God in the flesh staring at you this morning. Will you reject him or will you receive him? Will you let him do a mighty work in your heart and life? Or will you have those sad words said unto you that he could do there no mighty work because of their unbelief? Let us pray.